Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degler. Today, let us talk about health tech. I would like to play you an interview with Fiona Patiraja, a former NHS doctor and the founder and managing partner of Krista Galli Ventures, which is a European health tech VC based in London and Copenhagen. So, and uh, you are currently uh, the founder managing partner at uh, Krista Galli Ventures, and before that you used to be a doctor. So I really wanted to start uh, with just your personal background and then uh, go further uh, towards uh, what you're doing uh, for work right now. So can you just talk about yourself, basically? Yes. <laughs> what an opportunity to talk about myself. So, I, yes, I am now in venture capital and investing in health tech. But prior to that, I was a doctor working in the NHS. And um, I was in the NHS for, for, for you know, a very long time. And I was a radiologist there. So essentially, from a very young age in medicine, as soon as I qualified, I started trying to look at the bigger picture a little bit to try and figure out, you know, it's wonderful that we're having these really valuable experiences one-to-one -one with patients. So as a doctor, every day you're making a really tangible difference. Even if you're the most junior doctor there, you're, you're making some, you know, change in other people's lives every day. But I started thinking, what else is beyond that? So I started looking at the environment a little bit, you know, differently. And I asked to get involved in any sort of sort of management opportunities in the hospital, only to be told at the time, look, you know, you're, it's great that you have enthusiasm, but you know, you're not, you don't have any skills. So go out there and get some skills and come back. So I decided to take some time out and I worked as a management consultant for a year. And then I was headhunted to the UK Department of Health, where I worked in policy for a couple of years, um, devising health policy in London, and then came back to finishing my training as a radiologist in the, um, in the NHS. And I really started those sort of formative experiences gave me a lot of rich experiences to understand healthcare at the various different levels and layers to understand that it's this really complex environment. And it's not as sometimes as simple as it appears, you know, either from a patient point of view or from a or doctor point of view. And then after that, I, I finished my training, got an MBA from London Business School. And then when I went back to the NHS, I realized, look, you know, actually my, my mindset and outlook on life has really changed during the MBA. Um, and so I decided to move from frontline clinical practice into investing. So that's me in a nutshell. It's a really unusual career path, I have to say. I don't really understand how does one uh, go from uh, being trained as a doctor uh, straight towards management, management consultancy? That's actually not that unusual these days. When I did it, okay. it was quite unusual back so I did that in 2008 these days actually manage the management consulting world is very welcoming of doctors because mm -hmm. you know people often see medicine as this very fixed I guess very technical career but actually you know young doctors are problem solving every day they're very bright they're very creative they have a lot of you know, important skills, which are easily transferable into management consulting, investment banking, venture capital, etc. Wow, this is interesting. I never, I never really thought about it this way, but uh, I, I guess you're right. So uh, the venture part of your career then, uh, what is uh, Krista Galli Ventures? And uh, did you actually do anything before uh, founding uh, this, uh, this firm? Did you do anything in VC before that? No. So this is the first foray into investing. And um, I also do some angel investing on the side. But Crystal Galley Ventures is essentially um, a pan-European um, health tech only fund where we invest at seed and series A. And we have three key verticals that we're investing in in healthcare. So deep tech, digital health, 
and personalized medicine. And we have so far got around, I think, 17 companies in our portfolio. And we try and essentially find great founders who are building the future of healthcare and, you know, people who understand that actually, you know, they're solving real clinical problems that are real problems to people in hospitals, in healthcare settings. And that's quite challenging because actually lots of the deep tech founders I've come across have got great technology, but sometimes they're trying to retrofit it to a clinical problem. But the best founders I found are ones who really understand the patient and doctor pathways and then have found a technology that's solving a real problem. Would you say that these best founders are actually also former doctors? Not necessarily. I think that it's um, it's a fine balance, isn't it? Because of course, as a doctor, as a former doctor myself, I can I'm deeply embedded in that um, in the problems of healthcare, and you can really see, you know, this needs to be improved, that needs to be improved. But I think that actually you don't have to be a doctor to work in health tech. You don't have to be a nurse or a, or a clinician even. We have some great founders who are technical founders, but I think it's what's key here is to understand the patient and clinician pathway. So we've got a great company called Skin Analytics, which is based in London. They have a, a great founder called Neil Daly, who isn't a doctor, but he understands, you know, uh, the company's using artificial intelligence to diagnose skin cancer. So he knows the whole pathway, what it's like for the patient, what it's like for the clinicians. And I think you don't have to be a clinician to understand that, but you need to be humble enough to go and ask those questions and to really understand the the, the sort of complex landscape. And uh, actually, how receptive do you think the healthcare industry is uh, for these startups and for these founders just, you know, coming uh, coming along and asking questions and trying to figure things out and trying to maybe work on some problems? I think it's changing. So Neil said actually from Skin Analytics, you know, a long time ago that, it, you know, when he was going to speak to to professors or people in who are skin cancer experts, they were saying what he was talking about was sort of impossible. But today, especially with the winds of change that are accompanying COVID, doctors and clinicians in general have massively changed their attitude. So I think they're much more welcoming of technology and the people that are attached to it in these startups because they've realized that actually, you know, healthcare is massively inefficient and COVID has made people realize, actually, you know, we can do things differently. And I always say this story, but I have to get it out there, that one of my closest friends is a a gynecology surgeon and he always says to me, you know, I, I really don't understand this sort of telemedicine. I think it's really important that we see our patients physically. And then I met him a few months into the into the pandemic and he was just uh, sort of extolling the virtues of telemedicine and saying how great it is that he can see his patients on, on screen. And I think that the clinicians, you know, are really changing their attitudes. And I think that now they're really welcoming of people who are coming, who, you know, because founders I love working with founders because they're interesting, intelligent, bright people with a very sort of can-do attitude. And I think that in healthcare, one of the things that's not talked about so much is that we all start off with these very idealistic, wonderful attitudes. And over time in the public sector, you start to slowly realize, okay, you know, maybe I can't do all the change that I want to do. So to meet founders who still have that ethos, I think it's very exciting. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, you've already mentioned a few very different, uh, let's say, parts of uh, health tech. And uh, and so I really wanted to ask uh, your um, your opinion, your vision of how you actually see uh, the field. Because uh, for, for, for myself, like I write about it once in a while. So I analyze uh, the data, crunch numbers. And still, it, I really do struggle to wrap my head around like the field as a whole, because it's just uh, way too broad, way too big. Uh, so, so can you talk to me about uh, how you actually see 
it as a whole and uh, which which categories do you think are most important let's say and uh, uh, what uh, what jumps uh, out uh, at you uh, from this uh, big hall of health tech yeah i think that's a very big question and i mean i'm not sure I'll, i'll answer it fully but i'll do my best so the way that i view health tech or healthcare where technology can sort of play a part in creating solutions is Firstly, we start off with things like wellness and primary prevention and screening. So let's say wellness being, you know, how do we prevent burnout? How do we prevent obesity? How do we prevent people from getting diabetes? You know, can we track their sleep? Can we track their diet? Can we do meditation? That sort of thing. Then screening, which is around screening healthy people to try and diagnose sort of things like cancers early, like the breast cancer screening program. Then we move on from that, which is essentially healthy people to people who have an illness. So diagnosing and then managing and staging disease. So how do we diagnose pneumonia or lung cancer? Then the next stage of that is treatment and care delivery. So once we know someone has depression, you know, how do we treat them? Do we give them a talking therapy? Do we give them medication? Um, you know, do they need to see their GP or a psychologist? So there's all of that. And then the final segment is surveillance and at-home management. So of course, if you've got a chronic disease, something like, um, let's say diabetes, you know, you see your specialist, but then you also need to manage yourself in between those times. So do you continuously monitor your glucose on an app? You know, do you um, keep a diary of your chronic disease sort of symptoms that you might have? You know, so that that sort of thing. And then underlying all of all of those different segments is the finance, logistics and operational side. So the back end of healthcare, so to speak. So really, this this is, a, you know, as you said, it's, it's a big area. And We have split our portfolio into these three areas. So deep tech being artificial intelligence and machine learning. And how can we use that to help diagnose disease and maybe predict disease using the deep sort of layers of data that we have in the healthcare service. Then we invest in digital health, which we're looking at sort of B2B and B2C chronic disease management, for example, and the digital tools to aid diagnosis, tools to support patient behavior. And then the final segment that we're investing in is personalized medicine. So I'm really keen in a future where actually patients are empowered and, you know, they're managing their health a lot themselves. And then, you know, before they get sick. And I, I envisage a future where actually we'll have tailored um, treatments, tailored to our genome, to our epigenetics, um, things like that. So I think to our microbiome. So those are the three areas that we're, we're investing in. And, you know, as you said or touched on, healthcare is much larger. So, you know, it also includes things like the life science area, biotech, pharma, you know, R&D. We don't invest there. We tend not to invest in the wearable space as well, because that's also a huge uh, space that's growing. Um, and also we don't do traditional med tech. So devices, for example, medical devices are very complicated and very capital intensive. Those are outside our scope. So I think really you're right. It is a complex space, but there are, there is so much opportunity. And one of the things I would say more from sort of a bird's eye view is that healthcare is something that is so inefficient. So there's a lot of value to capture and a lot of money to save healthcare systems as well through the use of technology. And I think that it's a space where, you know, people also forget that often tech companies, um, you know, people move into healthcare because it's, really, um, you're doing something with real purpose. And I think that that's why a lot of people are attracted to it, because you are actually helping people, um, you know, to improve their lives. 
Right, understood. And uh, how about your own uh, angel investing then? Do you also invest uh, in these uh, three sort of uh, big fields or are you more uh, widespread in your widespread in your interest? Um, it's mainly health and wellness. So it's a bit wider uh-huh. than, than these three areas. And um, it was actually inspired by the fact that many, many years ago, I, I started to get to know um, a guy called Andy Puddicombe, who is the founder of Headspace. Um, and uh, we, we have sort of been Twitter friends for, since 2009, I think. And actually, um, somebody said to me a couple of years ago, you know, which company do you wish you'd invested at? early on. And actually, I wish I'd invested in Headspace, you know, when I first <laughs> knew him. Um, so I invest in, in in that sort of health and wellness space. So it's not exactly the same sort of three categories that we because, you know, we have to stick to an investment thesis and we have to focus. So one of the challenges I have as a investor in 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 a fund is actually trying to really stick to our categories because there's so many exciting novel things happening in healthcare but i want to invest in everything and of course you can't you can't do that Right. And I wanted to also do like a quick uh, sort of sidestep uh, towards uh, uh, Krista Gala Ventures itself, just to understand a little bit how uh, uh, how it is and uh, how it works and how big uh, it is. But first of all, uh, like for, for forgive my uh, uh, ignorance, but what is Krista Gala? Uh, the Krista Gala is one of the bones at the top of the inside the skull at the top of the skull. It's actually just my favorite oh. favorite part of anatomy. It's one of the, um, uh, the the landmarks that you learn when you're doing neuroanatomy. So I just gave it that name because I thought it's something that's you know unique and actually to me it sounds a bit like a, a constellation as well um so so that's the the reason behind the name and um as as mentioned you know we invest at seed in series a and we are investing across europe and we have one sort of opportunistic company that we came across in the us which we invested which is a stanford spin out um in deep tech right and how big is it, how big is your team right now we are four people based between London and Copenhagen. We have one LP, which is my um, partner's family office. And that is the single LP in our fund at the moment. So we are based between two countries, which you know has been interesting during the pandemic. Um, but also, I think that one of the things I was mentioning to, to somebody the other day is that actually being in Copenhagen, and be, I'm on the board of two health tech companies in uh, Denmark. So Cerebru, which is a deep tech radiology company, improving um, uh, the way that we're doing brain MRI. And then I'm on the board of a company called Radiobotics, which is another Danish company working on musculoskeletal x-rays and how we use artificial intelligence to, to diagnose disease on that. And actually, I've learned a lot in terms of the cultural differences you know, which is I found quite, um, for example, it's a bit of a sort of glib example, but I find it quite, I guess, shocking that people in the Nordics just pick up the phone and ring people all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> How invasive. No, but the thing is, in the UK, we just don't do that. And I yeah, think yeah. that, you know, so, so when someone's ringing me, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, there must be an emergency, something must be terribly wrong. And then they're like, <laughs> no, oh. I fully agree. <laughs> You know, they're like, oh, would you like the away day here or there? I'm like, why are you calling me for this? Um, so I've had to learn to, to adapt, you know, and, and to, to realize that different people do things differently. And I, I feel like I've grown a lot as an investor and as a board member as part of, you know, of my decision to be based 50% in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And how about the difference between uh, uh, these two ecosystems in terms of uh, health tech? Um, I think, you know, as I'm sure you, you know, this, this sort of the Nordic health tech, especially in Sweden, the, the, that ecosystem is very alive, you know, 
Cree has just raised that huge $300 million round, for example. Um, so it's, I think in the Nordics, there's a lot of openness, not just from the founders, but also the ecosystem around them. So whether it's policymakers or um, investors, people seem quite open to, to change. And I think that in the UK, there's definitely a lot of capital and a lot of founders, but I think it's only now that they're beginning to kickstart the policy changes that are needed to drive health tech forwards. Like, for example, in the more conservative areas like Germany, um, now you have DIGA, which is this policy that's trying to help digital therapeutics be approved. And, uh, you know, sort of your doctor can give you an app for depression, for example. Um, and, you know, that kind of stuff is, has taken a long time to get to that stage. And in the UK, we've got an organization called NHS X, which is the sort of the technology arm of the NHS trying to provide capital and projects for these deep tech startups or, or health tech startups rather to get into healthcare properly. So I think that's the difference that actually people are, you know, people are, are lovely everywhere across Europe, but actually one of the things I've noticed is that healthcare is local, you know, and we talked about Cree earlier, but, you know, I think they've mentioned in previous podcasts that actually, um, going from country to country is very different. There's a lot of, you know, sort of organizational barriers that are very local to the country. And that's something that I've learned when looking at investing in this sort of pan-European way. It's, there's no such thing as pan-Europe because actually everyone's doing things in, in a slightly different way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, moving on to the next question. So in a previous exchange, what you said uh, was that traditional VC, in your opinion, is not uh, is not working uh, in, in the healthcare setting in general. So can you walk me through uh, this, uh, like extend on, uh, expand on this uh, idea? Why do you think it is, it is so? And uh, how do you think it could be solved? Well, I mean, I think that that quote is perhaps like generalization. My point is more that actually traditional VC wants to see a return from their companies, you know, for their LPs within five to seven years, for example. And, you know, actually healthcare, things take longer because it's not a space where you can just move fast and break things. Because at the end of the day, everything that we do here has to be centered on the patient and, you know, the outcome for the patient. So we need to focus on safety. And that means doing things, you know, that are are clinically validated, that are, you know, that meet regulations. And those things take time, right? So you need to convince doctors to trial this thing in whatever it is, this technology in the hospital. You need to get the, you know, a CE mark or UK CE mark for it or an FDA approval if you want to go to America. So I think that's more what I meant that actually, you know, venture capital, there is a lot of venture capital moving into healthcare. I think it's great. Digital health is massively expanding in the US and, and in the EU. And I shouldn't say EU now that we've left, the UK has left <laughs> the EU across Europe and the US. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it's great that it's, it's expanding so much, but there is still this, the point that, you know, you can't fast track you know, a regulatory approval. And, and this, I will, this will remain nameless. But when I was a doctor working in a central London teaching hospital and we were working with a technology company and one of the people who was supposed to be in charge of regulation there, you know, said to me, who do we need to sort of pay to, you know, move some of these obstacles? And it's not really about paying, right? It's about actually saying, well, we need to meet regulation. So we can't just pay your way out of it. So I think, that's the thing that we need to remember when we're in healthcare that actually, you know, things take a little bit longer and that's fine, but investors and startups need to, I guess, work with those timelines a little bit. And, you know, we talked, touched about it earlier that some of the policy changes that are happening are actually enabling things to happen a bit faster. So for example, one of the key things in health tech, health tech is, you know, who's going to pay for this? 
whatever great yeah, technology yeah. you're building, you know, who's going to pay for this? And I think that, for example, in the US, uh, recently, uh, Viz AI, which is a stroke algorithm, is basically a stroke algorithm that runs on CT scans to diagnose stroke, um, has recently been got a reimbursement code, which means that now somebody's going to be able to pay for an algorithm. And that's opened the door for lots of other uh, regulatory approvals for um, deep tech radiology algorithms in the US. And I think that the policy changes are enabling things to move a bit faster as well. Great. And uh, and so how do you, as a, as a VC firm, adapt uh, to this uh, difference of the uh, healthcare space? Uh, uh, do you actually, like, do you think in longer term, uh, does your fund has a longer uh, lifetime? Yeah, we have, we call ourselves patient capital, which, which is quite a funny term in healthcare. But I think that it's actually, it means that we have a longer life cycle and we're not looking for that five to seven year return. We are a little bit more slow in the way that we're, you know, we're approaching things. That doesn't mean we don't want great returns. It just means we're, I guess, realistic and are happy to support our startups for longer at the earlier stages, um, you know, rather than getting them to jump from C to series A to B to C very quickly, because actually that might not be the right thing. They might need to grow slowly at the beginning. Right. I understand. And then I also wanted to uh, ask you about another point uh, from the previous exchange where you said that the digital health sector in general has been growing at an incredible pace. And of, co of course, uh, uh, the pandemic that you already mentioned, it's uh, sort of given it a boost uh, in, in many ways. Doesn't it mean that even, even with the general framework of a VC with a faster return expectancy, it's still sort of working uh, in, the, in the health sector? Doesn't it contradict uh, what you just said? I think it shows that there's a lot of opportunity. It doesn't necessarily show that everything's going to exit in five years, right? I think it's showing that, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of forces, macro forces that are changing, whether it be the pandemic or these policy changes such as DIGA, um, are making things a little bit quicker and opening up the market. And actually there's areas, you know, other areas that people are moving into. So the more sort of, um, uh, direct to consumer aspects of healthcare, you can move a little bit faster in. But some of the things that we are very deeply embedded with, things that require regulation, things that require, um, you know, clinical validation and trials, there is, you know, very little we can do to make that process much, much faster than it is at the moment. And towards the end, to wrap it up, I really wanted also to ask uh, your your opinion on uh, something I've heard before. Uh, some people were saying, and uh, that was, I think, uh, someone from Crew, uh, saying that now that a lot of people have tried uh, telemedicine, they are not uh, willing to go back even after the lockdowns are ended and everyone can actually go to see their doctor, but they will not uh, want to do it. Do you think it is in indeed so, on both on the side of patient and the side of doctor, and maybe you can talk about your friend again that whom you mentioned before do you think he do you think this friend is going to is going to welcome uh, patients uh, coming uh, back in person or uh, are they okay still with the, with the phone and telemedicine I think that a certain demographic, you know, people of my age or younger, for example, might want to keep doing that. But actually, if you have a long-term chronic disease, it is nice to be able to see your um, physician face-to-face. -face. And I think that that's, you know, that's quite important. I actually also think that in the future, telemedicine is going to move to a different model where actually you have the telemedicine platform attached to some physical clinics. Because, if, for example, if you think about some of the things around mental health, for example, you know, there is a time where actually, you you know, if a patient's in crisis or you need more intensive treatment, you want might want to actually have 
that access to a physical clinic. You know, or if you've got an app, let's say looking at skin cancer or something like that, and you say, look, this probably is skin cancer, you probably do need to go to a, a you know, a dermatologist. It's probably quite nice to be able to have that clinic attached as part of the platform, the telemedicine platform. And actually in the future, I, I, I am quite keen on the idea of um, telemedicine that's attached to specific underserved communities. So, for example, in in the US, we've got um, uh, Folks Health, which is a primary care um, organization that's mainly for LGBTQ people um, who who are not really who are not having their needs met per se um, by traditional medicine. So, I think telemedicine is really exciting. I don't. I think it'll probably move to a hybrid model, and I don't think people will you know never want to see their physician again. I think also physicians quite like seeing patients. They went into medicine because, you know, they like that. But I think the the future is going to be a much more hybrid model where we're scaling and actually being able to see more patients in a a more effective way, thanks to all this technology. Fiona, thank you so much for answering uh, all my questions. Uh, Thanks a lot for taking the time and uh, good luck uh, with everything you're doing at uh, Christigal Ventures. Thank you so much for having me. really appreciate your time. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. Send them all to podcast at tech.eu. This was Tech EU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.